0: Understand, not all unbelievers are apostates, but all apostates are unbelievers. And he's describing here a type that come into the church, sometimes as leaders, sometimes as preachers. They creep in unnoticed to do damage on the inside. But because their conversion is not real, they end up abandoning the fellowship.
1: Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. In today's sermon, we will see that Jude describes the past judgment of apostates in Jude 5. And to show God's attitude towards apostates who are guilty of apostasy, Jude illustrates with three Old Testament examples, which are the Jewish people, angels, and Gentiles. Today is part two of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, Staying the Course. Let's join Pastor Carl now as he continues.
0: So in the last time there shall be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts or desires. And so while apostasy is nothing new, in the latter times it is going to grow. And it is growing in our day like we have never witnessed before in the history of America. Now that's Jude's distress, over apostasy. Let's think also about Jude's description of apostasy. Jude's description of apostasy. Jude begins by describing the past judgment of apostates. He begins by describing the past judgment of apostates. So to show us God's attitude towards apostates who are guilty of apostasy, Jude illustrates with three Old Testament examples, with Jews, with angels, and with Gentiles. First with Jews in verse 5. Look at the text. Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things, once for all that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. So God delivered the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. The final miraculous sign that God required was blood be posted on the doorposts. Now, if you put gold and jewels and diamonds on the doorposts, the death angel would have taken them out, the firstborn. If you even put an unblemished, spotless lamb in front of the doorposts, the death angel would have taken them out. No, they had to slaughter the lamb, and they put blood, and it only required one believer to take God at his word. And that spared the firstborn. But that didn't mean that everyone who came out of Egypt was a believer. Because as you read the Exodus, you discover that there are people who were outwardly delivered out of the land of Egypt. But inwardly, they were lost. And so, if you remember the rebellion of Korah and all his godless gang. Who rebelled against the living God. And they were literally sucked out alive into hell. And so, there's a lot of people today who, quote, unquote, come out of Egypt. Egypt, of course, is used symbolically in the Scripture. It's used literally of a place called Egypt, but it's also used symbolically of the world. They've come out of the world, so to speak. They join a church. They come down front. A preacher can only take them at their word that they understand the plan of salvation. And assuming they do, and they say, I want to be baptized, you baptize them, and And then they end up apostatizing. They turn away from the faith. And understand not all unbelievers are apostates, but all apostates are unbelievers. And he's describing here a type that come into the church, sometimes as leaders, sometimes as preachers. They creep in unnoticed to do damage on the inside. But because their conversion is not real, they end up abandoning the fellowship. Joseph Smith was one such person, the founder of Mormonism. He heard clearly, explicitly the plan of salvation, but he rejected it. Why? Because a man's theology is often dictated by his morality. I hope you know he had over 40 wives. And so he wrote a book that gave credence to his sexual immorality. He became an apostate. He heard the truth, walked up to the edge of the truth, rejected the truth, and because of that, he manufactured a lie. And so an apostate is someone who's received light, but they haven't received life. They've heard the written word, but they haven't embraced the living word of whom that book is all about. So having illustrated with some Jews who came out of Egypt, now he turns to angels. Look at verse 6. In angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So he's reminding us of some angels who apostatized. It seems almost unbelievable that some bright, shining, glorious, magnificent minister of God, servant of God, could turn away from the living God. So who is he referring to here? Obviously, this is not the fall of Satan when he took one-third of the angels with him because he's describing a particular group of angels, if you have it underlined, who are in eternal bonds. Satan and his minions have freedom to wage war in the heavenly places. Daniel 10, Ephesians 6 describe that. But whatever it is, it's familiar to them because he opens this with, now I desire to remind you. In other words, he's reminding them of something they already know. Well, where is this found? Obviously in the Bible. Verse five refers to a scriptural event. Verse seven refers to a scriptural event. So you can expect verse six to refer to a scriptural event, especially since he's speaking of the faith delivered once for all. And these angels in verse six, we're told did not stay in the realm of authority and the sphere in which God created them to function, they abandoned, the text says, their proper abode. Notice verse 7, what did they do? Notice, just as Sodom and Gomorrah. So he's drawing a a parallel. Now there's a parallel between what the people of Sodom did and what these angels did. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. And so the text says they are exhibited as an example and undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So whatever Sodom and Gomorrah did, there is a parallel between what these angels did as introduced by the two words, just as. They committed gross immorality and they went after strange heteros. We get our word hetero from it. They went after strange, a different kind, a different nature of flesh. Now there's only one passage in all the Bible that even gives hint to what this is, and I'll not labor it because I preached a whole sermon on it earlier in this series, but let me just dust off your minds with Genesis 6-4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men. Now, please note what it does not say. It does not say the sons of men came into the daughters of men, but the B'nai Elohim, a term used in the Old Testament of angels, the sons of God went into the daughters of men. They bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now again, there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament, and they render this the angels of God. Why? Because that's what's in view. Now we know from what Jesus said that angels cannot procreate with other angels and produce angel babies, and in that way we will be like them in the resurrection. However, these angels did take on human form, and they always appear as males in the Bible. And they cohabitated with the daughters of men as much as the angels in Sodom and Gomorrah recognized the legitimate possibility for the men of Sodom to try to cohabitate with them. Now, again, I preached a sermon on it, the days of Noah and Jesus' return, because Jesus makes a parallel between the immorality and the perversion of Lot's and Noah's day with what is going to happen at the end of the age. Now, don't miss Jude's point. He's giving this illustration that was common knowledge, and by the way, for the first 1,500 years of church history, it was the only way this text was understood. Now, we've come up with some bizarre meanings in the last hundred years or so under the guise of scholarship, but it's just wrong. He's reminding them of a text that they knew, that these angels apostatized and that God had created them for a specific purpose, never to cohabitate with humans, but they committed this vile, heinous sin. Now, beyond the profession of these Israelites in verse 5, and beyond the position that these angels fell out of. Now in verse 7, he speaks of Gentiles who were granted a special possession, but they fell away from it. Look, um, look what he says. He's he's describing here the men of Sodom who like these angels. So let's ask a question. Did the Gentiles living in Sodom and Gomorrah have some knowledge of the gospel so that they could fall away or turn away from the truth? And of course, the answer is yes, on several levels. Number one, we know that one of Noah's son was alive during the time Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. We know in addition that they had been given special revelation and and, uh, special revelation through creation and through conscience. Look, the heavens are declaring the glory of the Lord. How, how, How wonderful was Sodom and Gomorrah? It was one of the most precious, magnificent pieces of real estate on the earth. In fact, it was compared to the Garden of Eden. And that should have all by itself caused them to turn to God, but rather they suppressed the truth of God given in creation. Not to mention Romans 2.15 teaches every even pagan Gentile has the law of God written in their hearts so they know the difference between right and wrong. They can suppress that knowledge, they can scar and sear and callous their conscience but nonetheless they have it initially. And so we know from these passages that in spite of the profession of the Jews who left Egypt, in spite of the incredible position that God had given to angels, and in spite of the incredible possession he had given these Gentiles, they turned away, and they took the grace of God, and they turned it into licentiousness. What a warning to the LGBTQIA movement, because they are an example, Sodom, of those who are undergoing eternal fire, the punishment of eternal fire. So don't let anyone ever tell you you're being judgmental and unloving to warn people of a sin that is now permeating the American culture. If a preacher doesn't preach against this, he's weak, he he's not a man who's called of God. At least he's not doing what God has called him to do. And he's helping to spread the sin of homosexuality instead of shining a bright light with the Holy Scripture. And so in our day, think about what has happened. It was once illegal in all fifty states. It was considered a sin. And then in the seventies and eighties, the American Psychiatric Organization said it's not a sin, it's a sickness. And then we went from calling it a sin and a sickness for it to be called socially acceptable behavior. In fact, we made it a virtue in our day. There's a moral meltdown that's going on in our nation, and churches are helping to feed it, and that they're turning the grace of God into licentiousness. So having described their past judgment, be on your outline, Jude describes the present characteristics of apostates. He now describes the present characteristics of apostates. Verse 8 begins, yet in the same way, and you will quickly ask in the same way as what? In the same way we saw the children of Israel turn away, in the same way we saw angels and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah apostatize, even so people can apostasize apostatize today. In other words, the decisions and the evil practices that characterize apostates in the past will characterize apostates in the present. Notice, in the same way, these men also by dreaming... Now, if you have the King James, it renders it filthy dreamers. And you will see the word filthy is an italics indicating it's not part of the original Greek, but it's implied, and rightly so. It's a good rendering, and it's actually a noun, so I think they capture it maybe a little bit better than the New American Standard. Filthy dreamers. And that's what they do. They in contrary to the pure, unadulterated truth of Holy Scripture, they come up with their own filthy imaginations, wicked things. They are filthy dreamers. They come up with things that are beyond the realm of imagination. And that's what we're seeing happening in our nation, where men are calling good evil and evil good. And if you call good good and evil evil, then you're the bad person. Look, all truth has been given us a plumb line and it's called the faith delivered once for all. We have a plumb line. It comes down to in the end, either this book is the word of God or it's not. Now if you doubt that, read my booklet. I'll give it to you for free, how to prove the Bible is true. You can find it on Amazon. If you're live streaming, you can write me and I'll send it to you. In the same way, these men also by dreaming, notice, defile the flesh. Now understand there are many unbelievers who are moral people. They're happily married. They're good citizens. They pay their taxes. They work hard all week. But he is describing here a, of, a category of people called apostates who were exposed to the truth of Scripture, rejected the truth of Scripture, and so they have believed a lie, and they are encouraging others in that lie, in that lie of filthy indulgence. So we might Ask a question here. Why would an apostate be more prone to this kind of filthy imaginations, this kind of sensuality, than, say, an ordinary unbeliever? For the simple reason that he had the truth and he said no to the truth. There are many highly moral unbelievers still left in the United States of America, and they've never heard the plan of salvation. This is a man who heard the truth, and whenever you lose. The truth, because you reject it, your life changes. You begin to think with an upside-down, depraved, reprobate mind. In Paul's words, they have seared their own conscience as with a branding iron. First Timothy four two. In describing these people, in Second Peter two twenty, Peter said, "For if," and by the way, Second Peter that whole chapter is a perfect not a perfect parallel, but it is a parallel to the Book of Jude because the major subject in Second Peter are these who were bought by the master but did not receive the master. Again, apostates, and at the end of that chapter, he says, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. So he's describing someone who's come to a knowledge of the truth, They sat in a church like this. They heard the plan of salvation. They heard salvation was not earned or worked for, but it's by grace alone. They came to a knowledge of the truth, but they didn't do anything with that knowledge. And so he will liken them to a pig that's all shined up but goes back to the mud, or like a dog whose nature is not fundamentally changed, and so he goes back and he eats his vomit. These are people who have been exposed to the truth, but they weren't changed by it, and so what happens? Their latter state is worse than the first. Hey, look, many of you know that Audrey and I worked with college students for over a decade. And we shared the gospel literally with thousands of college students. And we would meet some of these kids who had come from Bible-believing churches, just like this, but who had obviously not genuinely come to faith in Christ. And I witnessed to more than one of those. But then after a while, because of their unwillingness, they came to a knowledge of the truth but didn't do anything with it. And they sit under some liberal professor who begins to mock and make fun of the Bible and tell you why you shouldn't believe it, why it's full of errors and full of myth and on and on and on. And that's all the excuse they need. And now they have a justification for their sexual immorality that once bothered them or their use of drugs, smoking dope, drinking booze. And then they come back and they say, you know, I, I don't believe what this church believes anymore. I have a new set of beliefs. This is 2 Peter 2.20. This is the book of Jude being fleshed out. Now, in thinking about the characteristics of apostates, not only do they defile the flesh, he also says they despise authority. Let's read verse eight. Yet in the same way as these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority. It goes back to verse four, who says they deny their only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, don't forget, Jude is not speaking of um, of a believer, he's speaking of these who have crept in unnoticed into the church. It might be in the guise of a seminary professor, it might be in the guise of a pastor, a missionary, an evangelist, just an ordinary church member, so to speak. But like the devil, rebellion is filling their hearts, and they don't like what this book says. They reject it. They they push against it. They despise the authority of the holy scripture. In addition, they disgrace God's glory. Number three, they defile the flesh. They despise authority. They disgrace God's glory. Look at verse eight. Yet in the same manner, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh, reject authority, and notice... Revile, circle that word revile. You should have three words circled. Defile, reject, and revile, angelic majesties. Now, those two words, angelic majesties, if you have the NASB with marginal notes, it literally says, it brings you out into the margin, it says glories. You see that? Literally glories. It's from the word doxo. We get our word doxology from it. It's usually translated glory in the Bible. And this word revile is the word blasphemeo. You can hear our word blaspheme or blasphemy in it. And so the Greek literally reads, they blaspheme glories. Um, the margin says here they revile glories. And contextually, of course, it's referring to angels. The ESV and the HCSB translation renders it they blaspheme the glorious ones. The King James says they speak of evil e- they speak evil of dignitaries, again referring to angels. But here's the point. An apostate is quick to make fun of, reject, revile, Disdain things that God calls holy and right. There's nothing sacred to them. So we see these drag queens coming into the public schools in America and into the public libraries. Nothing's bad, nothing's unholy, it's all acceptable. And the Speaker of the House goes to one of these parades of drag queens. This is evil beyond evil. Wake up, America. We are in a moral meltdown. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And so to help us to understand the fact that they should tremble instead of revile holy things, he illustrates with Michael the archangel in verse 9. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, this specific event is not recorded in Scripture. So how do we know about it? God gave it to Jude as part of the revelation of Scripture. Now, there are two ways. Some say, well, there's a quote here in the book of Enoch and another quote from the Assumption of Moses. Nothing could be further from the truth. God doesn't quote pagan books. But what he does do is that there are sometimes oral traditions. And occasionally, God will take an oral tradition and he'll put his stamp on it and say, that oral tradition is true. And so, this either came by oral tradition or by direct revelation to Jude. In either case, it's true, though we don't find it in the Old Testament. Now, we do know, if you remember, in the Old Testament that Moses committed a sin unto death. To physical death. And so he was not blessed to enter into the promised land. And so in Deuteronomy 34, 5, and 6, we're told that when Moses died, so Moses, the servant of Yahweh, the Lord died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he, that is Yahweh, God, buried him. By the way, he didn't cremate him. He buried him. That's God's way. In the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no man knows his burial place to this day. So God performs this burial service. Maybe he said, Michael, get the angelic shovel and dig a hole for Moses. And in the process of it, I can only speculate because we're not giving the details, but we know there was a dispute over his body. The devil wanted it. Why do you suppose he wanted it? Because Moses was such a great man. He was um, the prophet who was a picture of the coming prophet. And if you remember when the children of Israel, years later, you can read about it in 2 Kings 18, remember that brazen serpent that Moses held up and whoever would look would live and it becomes a picture of Jesus, look and live at the cross and you'll instantly be saved as they were instantly delivered from the snake bites. What do they do with that brazen serpent? Centuries later they're worshiping it. And the devil probably knew that he could make Moses' body some Object of adoration, just like some places of the world they worship and venerate the so-called vial of breast milk that comes from the Virgin Mary, or the skull of the Apostle Paul, or the fingernails of Pe- It's unbelievable, some of the things. So Jude just calls attention to this, what Michael did. Michael, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Christ, he did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Jude's point is, is that if Michael, the greatest of God's ang- angels, the archangel, if he didn't even speak with uncertain terms, but he spoke in holy reverence, where he himself didn't even directly rebuke the devil, but let God rebuke him, he's just a, a a gross difference between the two. And people do the same today. They speak unholy, about holy things, they make fun of Mosaic authorship of the Torah. Oh, Moses didn't write it. There's five authors. That's taught in virtually every classroom in America and every college campus. JEPD theory. What did Jesus say? Jesus said Moses wrote it. Or uh, you know, you're you're sexist to say that marriage is only between a man and a woman. That's what Jesus thought. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his own and the two shall become one. Or or you're repressive when you say that God's ideal is for a woman to be a worker at home. Not to put her kids in daycare. My hat is off to women who have to do that. But that's not God's ideal. Oh, you preach that, you'll lose your congregation. You may, but you have to preach the truth. I'm preaching for the kids. I care about the kids. I want them to have God's best. Woman called me in the Bible line. She said, If it came between my tithe and paying my bills, what would I, what, what would I do? This is just two weeks ago in the Bible line. Because she's a, a mom working at home. Her husband provi- provides. I said, You never rob God. Now, many times I've had this situation. People come in, Well, uh, how many cell phones you got in the house? Oh, three. Well, those could go. You're on cable? Yet yeah, You don't need it. See, it's an issue of priorities. It's an issue of sacrifice. It's an issue of, am I really willing to obey what God says that a woman should be an oikos ergos? But you see, these things are made fun of today. They scoff at these things.
1: Please join us tomorrow for part three and the conclusion of Pastor Carl's sermon entitled, Staying the Course. If you enjoy today's message, remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program God's Prophetic Schedule 011. One of the most difficult questions posed by both Christians and skeptics of Christianity is the question, what about those who have never heard the Gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, Dr. Brogy answers that question biblically and clearly by explaining the justice of God, the lostness of mankind, and the incredible power of the gospel in his book, Are the Unevangelized Really Lost? You can receive your own copy with a donation of any amount to Search the Scriptures. Please call Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 to receive your copy today. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.